0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Housing, says Governor Jared Polis, is the key to just about everything. The cost of living, transportation, health. And he plans an
1: overhaul of land use policy, the
0: likes of which the state hasn't seen in 50 years.
1: I think the property owners need more rights and more ability to be part of the housing solution. And that very well means, you know, duplexes, triplexes. It means the ability to say, look, I live in a single family zone. I value that we want to protect the character of our community and I want to be part of the solution on housing rather than part of the problem on housing.
0: Fresh off his State of the State speech, we'll also discuss crime and why he's miffed with some hospitals. Then, what Colorado might learn from other places that have seen an influx of migrants. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In just a few years, Colorado turns 150. And like any birthday ending in a round number, it's a time to reassess where you're headed. That is how Governor Jared Polis framed his State of the State speech Tuesday as he begins a second term. He outlined important changes in housing policy to make it more affordable and healthier. He threw his support behind ideas to reduce crime. And right after his address, he sat down with us at the state capitol so we could explore his thinking further. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. You made affordable housing a huge emphasis in your State of the State speech. Uh, By rough count, the word housing came up 37 times. At one point, you said we should, uh, quoting here, legalize more housing options now. Specifically, what housing options should be legalized
1: that aren't now available? Yeah, this is something that has really touched almost every Coloradan, and that's because the cost of a home in Colorado is a lot more than it used to be. We can look around the corner, and I even brought this up by name. I mean, you see states like California, they have cities with average home prices above a million dollars, 16 lane highways, bumper-to-bumper traffic. We cannot let Colorado become California. And we can really make sure that we have more housing close to where jobs are and along transit corridors. And that means more opportunities for people to live, multifamily apartments on transit corridors near bus and rail, and empowering homeowners to be part of the solution. That includes things like accessory dwelling units. Accessory dwelling units would be like allowing someone to build on their property extra room. Uh, That's right. It would be kind of a detached unit. Many homeowners would use it to rent. You could um, potentially subdivide as well. But what it is, is it's more housing now. We need more housing in our state. Supply and demand dictates pricing. Demand is high. That's a great thing. People want to live in Colorado, but supply has not kept up with demand, and it's made homes unaffordable and unattainable for many Coloradans well into their 20s, 30s, 40s. And we've got to do more to have more low-cost homes for both home and rent close to where jobs are for convenience and for livability and for sustainability. So are you saying now that there are places in this state
0: where accessory dwelling units, for instance, or any of the other housing options you've talked about, where that's outright illegal? And would the state say to
1: a municipality, you've got to make that legal or else? Well, it's about all of the above, Ryan. I mean, you show me a strategy that'll lead to more housing along transit corridors and close to where jobs are, and we're for it. What the alternative is, and what's happening in our state, is exurban sprawl. If people have to go further and further out to be able to even put a roof over their head, more traffic on our roads, worse air quality, more time lost in commute, 45 minutes, 50 minutes each way less livability. So for people, for planet and prosperity, we need housing reform. We need land use reform. The last time the state looked at this was in 1974. We were a very different state in 1974 than we are today. And we need to make sure that we prepare Colorado's next 150 years to be even more amazing than our last 150 years as we near our 150th birthday. You singled out
0: communities you think are doing well when it comes to affordable housing, among them Breckenridge and Greeley. Get specific with me about what kind of stick you have, I guess, versus carrot, if there's a municipality that is resistant to this kind
1: of development. So uh, what, the reason we highlighted the work between Breckenridge and Summit County is they were able to get a project done, modular housing, lower cost, less than six months of planning. What happens in many parts of our state is needed housing is mired in red tape and costly delays for years. Sometimes it never even happens. Sometimes the investors move on. Sometimes the market changes. And so one of the examples you've cited there
0: in a way pushes fast forward on this. How soon do you think you can start to make
1: a dent in supply? if you change these kinds of rules very soon i mean it's amazing we, we talked about fading west which makes manufactured housing was in the gallery today they are able to now complete a home in their factory for in 12 days in 12 days this would take nine months a year if it was on-site construction it'd be even more difficult if it was in you know eagle or summit or grand county where it can be you know negative five degrees and you have to halt construction for a week in winter So the promise of innovation, the promise of new technology, pairing this with land use, sustainability, and water policy is going to be a key part of making sure Colorado continues to thrive and that we continue to remain Colorado. In the speech, your State of the State
0: speech, you mentioned using state lands for housing. Is that a role the government should
1: take on or does it ultimately interfere with the private market? We own some land. The state of Colorado um, certainly owns some federal government, owns even more in our state, but we want to aggressively look at where we have land that can be better used for housing rather than sitting empty or a parking lot. And not just the state. I've very specifically called on school districts, RTD, cities, counties to all look through their land inventory. And if they have the ability to contribute and be part of reducing housing costs and being the solution, they should. And again, we're putting our money where our mouth is as a state, and we're saying this is what we're doing. We highlighted the Dow Junction property in Eagle County, where we were moving forward with 80 units for affordable workforce housing, close to where needed jobs are with a workforce that's under great duress. And we're able to utilize this property from the state land board and Colorado Department of Transportation. So if there's someone who wants to
0: build like an accessory dwelling unit, I think a lot of us might know this as a mother-in-law suite. And their town says, nope, you can't do that. Our local zoning laws don't allow for it. Do we then picture Governor Polis stepping in and saying,
1: you got to do this? It's not about the state or local government telling you what you can and can't do. It's about what your rights as a property owner are. And property owners have rights. And of course, those rights should be extended if they want to be part of the housing solution and provide additional housing for rent or subject to subdivision for sale uh, on their single family lot. And so you think that idea of what I do with my property,
0: especially if I'm contributing to affordable housing, that should speak louder in a way
1: than some local zoning rules. Uh, I I think the property owners need more rights and more ability to be part of the housing solution. And that very well means, you know, duplexes, triplexes. It means the ability to say, look, I live in a single family zone. I value that. We want to protect the character of our community. And I want to be part of the solution on housing rather than part of the problem on housing. And, And that should be something that's up to homeowners. And I know that many homeowners across our state uh, will really rise to the task where they're currently prevented from being part of the solution and will become part of the solution.
0: I want to talk about the state's free universal preschool program. Enrollment begins this week, and a key question is staffing those preschools with child care professionals. Uh, you've made recruitment a top priority. You're offering incentives to open new child care centers. Uh, there's training for workers, even tax credits for those who hire on. But As you noted in a Yoda voice in your State of the State speech, it's a tight labor market. Childcare jobs are relatively low paid. Uh, So is the answer to, you know, this long-term commitment to universal preschool, is the answer one-time incentives or is it a more sustainable raising of salaries across the board? Where does the money come
1: from? Uh, First, everybody who is the parent or guardian of a three-year-old who will be four next year can go to upk.colorado.gov. That's upk.colorado.gov to sign up your kid for preschool, and it's free. Uh, I tried this this morning, and I entered my uh, zip code, and it came up with options near me. Yes, exactly. And it's up to the up to, parent can choose between many options. And it can even be one that's near your work as opposed to near where you live. Maybe you want to drop off your kid close to work. So all those options are available, uh, school districts, community providers, and it's uh, basically a you know, half-day program for preschool, academically appropriate. Many parents want a full day. That still costs them out-of-pocket money, although there are some full-day availability for low income. But half-day free for everybody, preparing kids for academic success. We included in our... Uh, workforce. We're building on our success in improving the healthcare for workforce. Remember, so many people in healthcare burned out during the pandemic mm-hmm. and had to work triple shifts and retired early, et cetera. Uh, We made it free to become a nurse assistant, a phlebotomist, an EMT. It increased enrollment and it increased the number of folks pursuing those programs. We're expanding that to fields like construction, law enforcement, but notable here, early childhood. So to be professional, early childhood certificate uh, will be free if our proposal passes in Colorado to help with the workforce. And I would also add that the preschool funding, uh, which voters passed overwhelmingly in Prop EE, which we supported, will also help compensate early childhood and preschool teachers better to be able to successfully recruit and retain the very best people to prepare our kids for success.
0: And that was tobacco tax money,
1: if I recall.
0: Speaking of paying for things, I spoke right after your speech with Republican House Minority Leader Mike Lynch, who represents Northern Colorado. And he's concerned that spending is getting out of control, that you want to raise per-pupil funding for K-12 through schools, for instance. You announced a $120 million clean energy tax credit package.
1: We're moving down some green initiatives, and we're using transportation dollars for that before we fix the roads in this state. Until we've made some sort of transition where people actually want to uh, be dependent upon public transportation, our, our roads are a mess. And I'm really worried that the money will be diverted away from good roads for those people that can't afford the electric cars or, or the bus just doesn't work for them.
0: Speak to the concerns that roads may suffer,
1: particularly in rural Colorado, and his general concern that there will be too much spending. So our clean energy tax credit program, including support for to reduce the cost of e electric vehicles, to reduce the cost of e-bikes, to position Colorado for success for Geothermal and hydrogen and carbon sequestration doesn't take one dime from the road funding. Um, it's a tax credit program. Uh, thanks to the work of the legislature with House Bill Two Sixty two years ago, we really updated the way we fund roads and bridges in Colorado, leading to $5 billion of additional investment over the next 10 years paired with the American uh, Infrastructure Act, which is sending billions of dollars to our state under the same period. So fundamentally, road projects are happening, and we're moving forward with improving the quality of our roads and bridges and access to various parts of our state with the funding we have from state and federal sources. And we're not in any way, shape, or form playing any of the renewable energy tax credits against any of the important work to improve our roads. And the notion that there are a lot of commitments you're making fiscally at a
0: time of uncertainty...
1: Well, you know, every year the governor is charged with delivering a balanced budget. We not only delivered a balanced budget, uh, but we did so with record reserve levels to prepare for a rainy day. It is clear that guns will be a big issue this session. Uh, Let's talk about a
0: couple of proposals you didn't mention in your State of the State, but that lawmakers have said they plan to introduce. One group of Democrats is working on a bill to ban firearms that fall under the umbrella of assault weapons. Uh, That would include some types of semi-automatic rifles and some types of 50 caliber rifles, semi-automatic pistols, shotguns, some shotguns. Uh, People who already own these guns could keep them under the proposal.
1: Uh, Would you support such a bill? You know, Ryan, this is the uh, the one speech and the one week where the governor and I, I get to lay out my agenda. There's 100 legislators and absolutely each have their own agendas and there's going to be 500 bills and I haven't seen any bills on the topic you're talking about, but obviously we'll look forward to looking at hundreds of bills uh, as they come through the process. But this week, what I laid out are the two most substantial important stats that I feel we can take on gun safety to help make Colorado one of the 10 safest states. Number one, we joined the call of Mayor Southers, Mayor Coffin, and Mayor Hancock, bipartisan mayors representing our three largest cities, to take action on ghost guns. These are unregistered, no serial number. Uh, they can be acquired by felons, sort of snapped together in your garage with mail-order parts, we have no current system to make them harder to attain in Colorado, uh, nor any way of preventing criminals from acquiring them. Number two, uh, we talked about the extreme risk protection order, also called the red flag law. This is a way when somebody's having a mental health crisis that you can temporarily remove custody of their firearms. They could return to them after their mental health crisis is you, ended. You'd like district attorneys to be we able talked, to file exactly. For those. Currently, it's limited to family members. Uh, and law enforcement. We talked about expanding that to district attorneys and we're happy to have a discussion about others that that should apply to. But this has been used hundreds of times. It has unquestionably reduced suicides in Colorado and it absolutely is a powerful tool to reduce gun crimes going forward. It is also
0: very unevenly used. So whereas Denver has used it routinely, El Paso County where the Club Q shooting
1: Occurred, yeah, and so that's what that's why this discussion of of a broader group. So in in the case of that shooting, you know, there was really one person, a mother that could have and didn't, and then law enforcement didn't want it. So who else should be able to? And I think at the very least, certainly the discussion of including district attorneys, potentially others. We want to make sure that when someone is having a mental health crisis, even if they happen to be in a different state or place in their family, uh, that there is some way that access to weapons can be temporarily restricted until they recover. But I guess the
0: point is you might be making it easier for those who like the red flag law to use it. And those who refuse to, I mean, sure, you're broadening who might be able to do it. But we're just seeing that in certain jurisdictions, the Second Amendment concerns are simply too big for them to move
1: forward. Well, first of all, it's not automatic uh, when it's issued. Just because you, th- you say in a petition that a court should remove access to weapons, that doesn't mean it's removed. The, the judge looks at that and examines that. So there's a process to ensure that of course we have the right to bear arms and and you have the right to have a gun. Uh, but if you're having a temporary mental health crisis, there should be a legal way to temporarily remove access to their weapons. Uh, that might've potentially been a factor in the King supers shooting as an instance, it was an immigrant family. Uh, if there was a way that they were aware of this, I think many of them might've even identified that their son brother was having mental health issues. So we need to make sure that it's available and known easy to access, And that the right set of people have the ability to apply when they see somebody experiencing a mental health crisis and they might be a danger to themselves or others. I know that you'll be
0: faced with any number of bills about firearms. Uh, There are conversations about increasing the minimum age, about a waiting period. I do want to go back to the idea of a so-called assault weapons ban. Plainly, regardless of what bills come to you, are there guns that are legal now that you think should not be?
1: Well, as you know, um, assault weapons, automatic weapons have been heavily restricted since 1986. Uh, you need a federal license, uh, extensive background check. There's only about 10,000 or so in the state of Colorado, and I'm not aware of any uh, recent gun crimes that an assault weapon or automatic weapon has been used in. Um, when you look at other types of weapons, um, they're used by Coloradans for hunting, for home defense, for a variety of other purposes, for sport. And again, it's more about making sure that somebody with criminal intent or who's currently in a psychotic state or having a mental health crisis is unable to access a weapon at that time. And so that's why I'm proud that Colorado's universal background checks. I'm proud that we have an extreme risk protection order. Let's work to improve that. And let's find other ways to make sure that if somebody is a danger to themselves or others, uh, that it's harder for them to acquire a weapon to engage in crime with.
0: So I haven't heard you name a weapon you think is legal now that c- should be illegal. Is that right?
1: Well, I, I, you know, again, I, what we've we've talked about ghost weapons that are untraceable and have no serial number. They it can be any kind of weapon. It could be uh, one that you assemble in your home that could be semi-automatic and maybe a pistol and maybe a long gun. Uh, but the problem is, is that these are easily put together, untraceable, and there's no background check in play. We're not talking gunsmiths here. We're talking about snapping together three mail-order pieces to have a completed weapon that you had no background check for, even if you were a convicted felon on a gun crime and might not legally have the right to acquire that. So that is your focus as opposed to other kinds of serial-numbered guns. uh, Well, increasingly we're seeing ghost guns used uh, in gun crime. And uh, I think that if we don't get our arms around this and there's model policies, other states, and there's new federal action on this too, uh, we've got to find a way— to prevent the genie from getting out of the bag on ghost guns because it threatens to undermine all the other gun safety measures that Colorado has, including universal background checks.
0: Let's talk more generally about crime. Uh, You congratulated, indeed, some local officials, specifically those mayors of Colorado's three biggest cities, for their work to reduce crime. Uh, And you said the state needed to, quoting here, step up and be a more constructive partner in their work. So you back... A series of proposals from these mayors, increasing penalties for car theft, tougher gun laws for repeat offenders who are car thieves or drug dealers. We've talked about the ghost guns.
1: Anything else? I joined uh, the mayors of our three largest cities, Republican and Democratic, Mayor Coffin, Mayor Hancock, Mayor Southers, in support uh, for the measures that you indicated around cracking down on auto theft, investing in proven crime prevention strategies, Uh, What we also proposed are a couple other elements. Uh, More support for community organizations and for law enforcement, we highlighted the work of the Boys and Girls Clubs in Colorado, 21 club sites in 15 counties, meaningful after school programming to help prevent kids from becoming justice involved, the need for supporting law enforcement recruitment and training, uh, as well as uh, when we talked about our workforce package, we also added law enforcement to that. So if somebody aspires to a career in law enforcement, they can get the training that they need if our package passes for free, to be a good law enforcement officer that is able to help play a constructive role in reducing crime in the state of Colorado and making us one of the 10 safest states. Let's talk about
0: migrants, asylum seekers. Thousands have recently come to Colorado, to Denver especially, and many have been served by Denver City Resources. Uh, For a while, the state was busing some of these migrants to other cities, and the mayors protested. Uh, After a phone call with them, you announced the busing had stopped. Uh, you and those mayors called for a federal solution to this, immigration reform. What makes you think that's more likely
1: now than the several attempts, for instance, when you were in Congress? Well, you know, first of all, we, you know, had a number of migrants in Colorado that were stuck here over the holidays, and we were very happy to be able to help them uh, move on and, and get where they wanted to go. And working with nonprofits, we highlighted um, Papagayo, uh, friends, a number of others that we worked with, and uh, really making sure that we had the right strategy in place to help migrants succeed. You know, one of my staff members got a message from a migrant I met and who spent time with our staff um, after they left for Chicago, and they, they said, thanks to God, to you and the governor, I'm doing fine. It was an excellent trip. So it's not about playing politics with this. Uh, it's really about, of course, how as a nation we can better address our broken immigration system. And it's a topic I'm happy to expound on at length. In my speech today, and we had several members of Congress there, we talked about pairing better border security with comprehensive immigration reform, including work permits for people who are already here. I still think that's a basic formula uh, that we need at the national level. Secure the border and make sure that people who are here, especially people who are seeking asylum, fleeing communist dictators like Maduro and Venezuela are able to work legally. We have two job openings in our state for every unemployed person. So if there was a faster route to work permits, and we've called on the federal government, the Biden administration to do what's called temporary protected status, TPS for Venezuelans, which they already did for Venezuelans that arrived before March 21st, 2021, but do it again. So people don't have to fight for a year or longer to finally get their asylum. And if, if they do expect local governments or states to put people up and support them for a year while they're fighting for asylum before they can work to support themselves, and by the way, they came here to support themselves. But if that's what the federal government is standing in the way of, then the very least they can do is help fund lodging and support for people who have pending asylum claims that will take many months to be processed.
0: Are you more optimistic about this moment in time for immigration reform than those
1: previous, when, when you witnessed it as a member of Congress? It's a necessity, Ryan. It's, you know, I, it was then, too. It is, but I think it's a louder and more urgent necessity. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether you're the left, the right, or center, I don't think you'll meet anybody who thinks that America's doing it right with regard to immigration and protecting our borders. And it's simply common sense we're not. Democrats don't think we are. Republicans don't think we are. Independents don't think we are. And so we have to have and push a national discussion about how we can do this in a way that honors our value as a nation and helps reduce crime and make America safer.
0: But that sounds quaint in the face of the gridlock we see in Congress.
1: Well, let's get them together. I mean, I I call on... Speaker McCarthy, on Chuck Schumer, on President Biden, uh, to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and to get something done on securing our border and comprehensive immigration reform. In your State of the State speech, you uh, interestingly singled out
0: hospitals, specifically nonprofit hospitals, whom you say have too much cash on hand and ought to cut the cost of health care. Uh, Presumably, some of those hospitals also face uncompensated care when patients walk in the door who can't pay and
1: don't have Medicaid, for instance. Are hospitals being asked to do too much? Well, the profit they're making is net any of those costs you talked about of providing uncompensated care. So when we say they're making a profit, even if it's nominally a nonprofit of hundreds of millions of dollars a year, that's after they've provided care to people that might not be compensated, which might be a few percent of the people that they provide care for. What we're talking about here is why you're making such a big profit if you're a nonprofit. That means you're charging more than your costs. Simply slash your prices and charge less. Number two, to the extent that you are assembling hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of profit and reserve that you never pay taxes on, the trade off is you're supposed to use that money for community benefit. Let's make sure that we uh, have oversight and accountability around the community benefit that's actually being provided. What would that look like? Uh, We want to make sure that, again, my first priority would be they stop overcharging people. But to the extent they're still accumulating large reserves and billions of dollars, let's see them as part of the solution around social determinants of health, like housing, child care, mental health, maternity care. These are areas that are urgent community needs in many parts of our state. And we'd love to see some of the uh, profits from so-called nonprofits deployed in this regard, since they're not contributing to the public side through the taxes they pay.
0: What you have not done in this discussion is name any particular hospital. May I ask why? If there, are, if there are known culprits that have you ticked off, say them.
1: Well, we have both nonprofit and for-profit hospitals in our state, and I'm certainly not defending for-profits and their pricing in any way, but what I am saying is at least they're paying taxes on their profits. So, so at least that goes back into the pot to help pay for health care, pay for housing, all the public goods. Uh, when you have large nonprofits... They don't pay property taxes. They don't pay income taxes. They often don't pay sales or use taxes. So they're exempt from so many of those things. And the trade-off is they're supposed to supply public benefit and public good. But in many ways, they're achieving profits that are levels that are higher than some of the for-profits. So uh, what is a nonprofit, and what should we expect as consumers in Colorado in exchange for this favorable tax treatment are the kind of questions that we're trying to pursue with regard to making sure we can save people money on health care in our state. I hear that you won't name a particular hospital at this point.
0: Before we go, let's wrap up where we began on housing, which you say is connected to the economy, to health, to climate, to water, and to transportation. You've spoken so often about the idea of density, housing density, and affordable housing near transit, so that people don't necessarily face the costs of a car, for instance. But you have been reluctant to spend state money on, for instance, RTD, the Regional Transportation District in Metro Denver. If the state is so high on the notion of a density and affordable housing near transit. Should it be making more concerted investments in transit agencies?
1: Well, I think we were uh, really excited. In fact, we went to RGD with the concept of free fair August. And after some debate, thankfully, they agreed to have free fares. We would love to see them expand that even more. That was with relief dollars. That was correct. with relief, but it's also for the, yes, but it, it doesn't expire. We don't have to consider that now. It's funded for the next year. The preliminary data shows it increased ridership. It's something we should absolutely about do, look at doing long term. So we have it funded for the next year. We'd like to expand that. Uh, and we look forward to having that discussion. Uh, but look, we look forward to working with transportation districts across our state. Uh, around how we can make transit work as an option for people. But a lot of that comes down to housing and where people live. And it's a virtuous cycle to a certain extent. If you live near transit and more people have the opportunity, if they choose to, to live near transit, the more customer base that transit has and the more transit we can do and the lower cost that transit is. So so having higher density and more people with the opportunity to live within walking distance of bus and rail will also help benefit the opportunities to deliver more bus and rail service at a lower price. I hear you saying that reshaping housing policy helps the bottom
0: line of the transit agencies, because it means more customers might use them. and It drives the- scale
1: and reduces costs, and it allows for increased frequency, which increases convenience to consumers. Governor, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Always a pleasure.
0: Democratic Governor Jared Polis speaks with us regularly at the state capitol. You'll find a transcript of this conversation recorded Tuesday afternoon at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues after the break with what recent migrant arrivals... Tell us about the state of immigration policy. I'm Ryan Warner, you're with CPR News and KRCC.
2: Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic, from Colorado Public Radio, is back for Season 2, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: Migrants continue to make treacherous journeys to places like Denver in search of work and safety. This started in larger numbers in Colorado in early December, but it's only the latest manifestation of a years-long trend. To help us make sense of this and put Denver into some context, we call Dara Lind. She has covered immigration for outlets like ProPublica and Vox, dating back to the George W. Bush administration. This month, she became a senior fellow at the American Immigration Council. And Dara, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me on. And uh, good work getting the governor to actually talk pretty concretely about this. I was listening in and it's refreshing to hear a local leader actually talking about the logistics issues involved.
0: And a former member of Congress, I'll ask you a few questions based on that interview in a moment, but why sure. why did people start arriving by the hundreds in Denver in December?
2: So, what we've seen over the last certainly over over the course of 2022 was uh the latest in a series of ongoing kind of cycles of bottleneck in how people are processed at the border Mm. and what that has led to what that led to over the course of the year was kind of the succession of people who were getting released from federal custody in border cities that didn't necessarily have the space to house them weren't necessarily where, where the migrants themselves wanted to go getting bust either you know the buses that Texas governor Greg Abbott was sending last year, uh, or through actual, you know, self-organized nonprofits to larger cities that could be transit hubs where they might be able to find work or might be able to get to their destination more easily. So Denver ended up as kind of a late comer to a series of cities, including obviously New York and DC. Also Philadelphia started serving as a, a hub late last year. That could, you know, in theory, be both welcoming and better, better able to help people than, say, a smaller city like El Paso. Not to mention, you know, some of the smaller communities like Eagle Pass, Texas, that we're just getting busloads upon busloads of people crossing.
0: And that are obviously right on the border. So this is a processing issue, you say. Is it also a question of simply more migrants arriving?
2: Yes, of course, and not only more people arriving, but who is arriving. Uh, As you may know, and your listeners may know, since March 2020, the US has had this order in effect known as Title 42, that ostensibly says anyone entering the country without authorization is a COVID risk and so can be expelled without the chance to ask for asylum, you know, in theoretically as quickly as 90 minutes. now. The problem there is you can't just expel them. There has to be another country that accepts them. Mm. And while some people have been able to, well, a few countries have been willing to let people get quote unquote expelled all the way back home. Most, In most cases, it's a question of, whether the government of Mexico is willing to take people who aren't Mexicans just to stay indefinitely under this Title 42 order. And so most of the people who have been getting released into the US have been either people who the Biden administration for humanitarian reasons doesn't want to subject to Title 42, uh, such as children and families, or people from countries that Mexico was not accepting back. So over the course of last year, we saw a very large increase in the number of Venezuelans coming. in cubans and haitians all of these were groups that mexico wasn't at that time accepting mm. now the biden administration prevailed on mexico and it announced a couple of weeks ago that they were now going to be able to expel some 30,000 people of those nationalities every month back to mexico under title 42 which in theory you know solves the immediate problem of this group of people you know that couldn't be subjected to this order the Biden administration is still using, even though it's made a couple of attempts to end it that have gotten caught up in court.
0: So that's something of a release valve, I suppose, um, as the migrants continue to arrive. Uh, Indeed, a couple of weeks ago, Biden announced that he'll allow more people to come to the U.S. legally. uh, But at the same time, this policy is designed to make it harder for folks to get asylum if they try to cross the border illegally denver's mayor has credited biden's policy with curbing arrivals in the city and the city has gone so far as to deactivate one of its emergency shelters Uh, but it seems like it might be a bit of a wait and see to know if this policy is having a concerted uh, impact
2: absolutely i mean we have seen so many times since 2014 that what happens is the federal government will crack down on a specific subpopulation of people who are crossing into the us that population will stop you know getting apprehended in as large numbers and then a different group will start and some of this is due to you know smugglers are responsive and will change the markets that they're marketing in will change their routes, will change their networks but some of it is also just that the push factors are so strong and certainly over the last couple of years you know even when very few people were getting let in under title 42 there were still a tremendous number of people trying because the situation in much of latin america has gotten so desolate over the last couple of years and so it's you know the the long-term question is both well for one uh what happens if and when title 42 is actually rolled back Mm -hmm. if the courts allow that to happen and two, you know, whether or not that happens, how will, you know, if the current, if the new expansion of Title 42 applies to Venezuelans, Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans, what about people of other Latin American nationalities? What about, you know, Cameroonians and other African groups, the other African nationalities who have often been traveling up through Mexico? It's not super clear what the long-term vision is if this is a, you know, the Biden administration will just continue rolling out new parole policies while it continues to expand Title 42 into Mexico. There seems to be a logical end point for where that's no longer the permanent answer.
0: And it's just not sustainable, I suppose, at a certain point. We are speaking with Dara Lind, uh, who has covered immigration for outlets like ProPublica and Vox for years now, and uh, she's just become a senior fellow at the American Immigration Council. In speaking with uh, Governor Polis earlier in the program, uh, he invoked the notion of allowing folks who are waiting for their cases to be determined, their asylum cases, to work, uh, and that that might solve labor problems in the United States. Uh, This is all of a piece, of course, of the much more complicated picture of of immigration reform, a nut that Washington has, to this point, not been able to crack. Does this moment feel different from all the previous moments that seemed to spark interest in an immigration compromise?
2: I would love to know who the governor is talking to in Washington, because honestly, here in D.C., I have rarely I have seen so little uh, you know interest or or expectation for Congress to do anything in this session. Uh there, as you may know, was a little bit of hubbub a couple of years ago when the Biden when President Biden was inaugurated around introducing a large bill, but they kind of you know that that hasn't you haven't heard anything about that for the last couple of years really. And that indicates generally, you know, we saw under the Obama administration certainly that you can say immigration is something you'd like to do legislatively but if you're not willing to put serious muscle into getting it through congress it's not going to happen and so while there certainly are you know it's it's certainly possible that things can get attached to must pass bills uh there is actually the several thousand liberians were legalized under the trump administration because that provision was attached to a defense authorization act <sighs> and while it's also possible that something could happen in particular for daca recipients if the supreme court rules that that program needs to get sunsetted or can no longer provide work permits i don't think that the governor is correct that this is going to be the year we see you know mass legalization and work permits passing through congress
0: uh, well that addresses the work question in particular, so that that is not a discussion you're hearing in Washington either, the notion that they'd be able to work as their cases are decided?
2: So not from the legislative perspective, but it's worth kind of walking through the administrative policy here. Um, Currently, asylum seekers, even before they're granted asylum, can apply for work permits and get them but they have to wait six months after their asylum application is filed. And because the stakes of an asylum application are so high, you can understand why people might not want to rush getting that you know, sent to the federal government the minute they enter the country. There's also been some problems in how long it takes these work permits to get processed. Mm. Processing times for a lot of things have gone up. And so you're talking about a wait of several more months on top of that. That's in theory the six-month window is something that the government has a little bit of flexibility administratively to fix it doesn't fix the processing problem what the biden administration has done with this new parole program is say you will have a work permit when you enter the u.s but it's limiting that to people who can afford to pay their own way and already have a family member or someone else who is willing to say in advance that they can support them for the two years that they're in the country, Hmm. and it will only last for those two years. So it's going to be interesting to see not just how much demand and from where there is for this new program, but what that means for, you know, you can assume that it's going to kind of deal with the immediate housing crunch issues, for example, but It doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot for the people who don't have someone already in the U.S. willing to vouch for them.
0: And uh, Dara, I'll say that Colorado's governor says some of the people arriving in Denver ultimately are trying to get to other cities where they have family or friends. You've hinted at this. Uh, So the state has helped pay for transport to other cities in concert with some nonprofits. But mayors in New York and Chicago publicly asked Colorado to stop doing that. This seems to be a mess with like Democrats in different states pitted against each other, and that's not to mention the Republicans who have eagerly sent folks into Democratic states and cities. Uh, what what does this say about immigration to the U.S., where where cities and states are left to figure all this out?
2: I mean, the argument that republican that say greg abbott wanted to start last spring when he started sending busfuls of migrants to dc has kind of played out to an extent right because the theory of that was immigrants are really a burden and the only reason that you know mayors in blue cities get to say that they're not is because they don't have to deal with the kind of bread and butter logistics of you know finding housing for them of of giving them services themselves but it's also true that the immediate need for services last year was just way higher than it's been in the past. And there are a couple of reasons for that, um, partly because the people who the Biden administration wasn't expelling out of the US, it didn't want to keep in detention for, you know, much time at all. Uh, whereas in the past, if you didn't have family members in the US, you were more likely to be detained pending your you know asylum trial. The other factor is just that for whatever reason, fewer of the people who were coming had connections to the US already. And so Hmm. while yes, you're right, some of these people did have you know knew where they had a relative in another city i also talked to people who were getting bused to dc who had all they had was the address of a homeless shelter in new york or at least what they thought was the address of a homeless shelter in new york some new york reporters found out that some of those were actually just like administrative offices of city services that people were getting sent to so it's the immediate need was just different and that has something to do with us policy but something just to do with kind of where the rest of the world is and that's always the case with immigration it's always going to be an interplay of why people are already wanting to come and what happens to them once they're here and so while these some of these issues of housing of work permits as we've been discussing really do come to the fore when you have a population of people who come without the immediate ability to support themselves the you know Register on which the political discussion happens is it's much more broad. Is the city full? Do we have too many people? Do we need fewer people? Which isn't, you know, that's that, that's absolutely a hawkish mindset, and it's exactly what Republican governors have been saying all along.
0: Well, put Denver into some context for us before we go. So you mentioned Philly, for instance, is another city where mm-hmm. there were migrant arrivals. Um, Is Denver unusual in its response in the notion of opening rec centers uh, to house folks, in partnering with nonprofits very specifically to take care of them or to find uh, their final destinations?
2: I would say that Denver and Philadelphia have been kind of the two cities that have been most proactive. Um, D.C. and New York were, you know, forced to be reactive because the you know the Abbott buses were initially something of a political stunt right they weren't necessarily something that was being done to aid migrants get to their final destination even though most of the people who were on those buses really were trying to get out east and so there was a lot of scrambling and a lot of kind of knee-jerk reflexes happening from the mayors of those two cities over the course of the summer and fall you know both Mayors themselves and the federal government started thinking, okay, what are other things that can be done to share this, you know, to share the burden, right? Are there places that are willing to house more migrants than they're being taken? Can they work with nonprofits to do that? And so in both Denver and Philly, when the numbers started rising there was this very smooth and concerted effort that was just very different from what we saw in DC where busfuls of people were getting dropped off at the train station and the bus was pulling away
0: mm. uh, you know one thing i hear in the immigration conversation is focus on the countries that folks are coming from and what are our policies towards those countries and are there ways of supporting them such that migrants wouldn't flee is is that a viable approach to immigration do you think
2: i think that the only if any reasonable recognition that it's not just about u.s policy u.s immigration policies right that there that people have reasons to leave their home countries no. separately from their reasons to want to come to the u.s in particular you know if you want to reduce that then yes of course long-term you know what gets called the immigration debate like addressing the root causes of migration right but a even if successful that's never going to be a short-term solution and it's barely going to be a medium-term solution so you end up with something of an ethical quandary where if you're doing this kind of medium to long-term root causes development while trying to crack down on migrant arrivals especially because in in the development literature, you actually see that as people get a little bit more money, they are more likely to leave because that opportunity becomes available to them. Ah. Then you're essentially telling current people that they're out of luck and they need to, you know, suffer from whatever threats, from whatever, you know, absolute deprivation they're dealing with in the hopes that that maybe the root causes will be addressed by the time their children are adults or something like that. The other factor here is that, you know, a lot of the looking a lot of the conversation as you mentioned about like our about latin america tends to be about us inter, history of us intervention of you know the us being less than a good neighbor to that to the rest of the hemisphere and regardless of whether that's true or not yes, just it's briefly. so much broader than that in terms of what's happening right now there have been several you know there were several hurricanes at the end of 2020 for mm-hmm. example uh the government of the U.S. is currently trying to pursue a human rights agenda, you know, and, and put that to the forefront in Central America so lots, while it's trying to get their invoice. cooperation on immigration. Yum. So you can kind of only do so much.
0: Daryl Lynn, senior fellow at the American Immigration Council, grateful for your time today. Before Thanks. joining the council, she covered immigration for outlets like ProPublica and Vox, We're grateful to you for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.